Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. The scripture for today is Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, Elevate this morning. So uh, if you are first or second grade, you can go out back to the elevate room if you'd like to. And the rest of us will be hanging in here. Just a real quick uh, follow-up to what Jeremy said, and I'm, I'm not going to spend much more time on it. We're going to get specific numbers to you. Our hope is that we're going to have a, a, a time of like a big give here uh, and then be able to announce the 1st of March. Uh, we're asking people to pray uh, and look at that. Uh, and hopefully our, our, our hope is that the 1st of March we're able to announce this is a progress. Uh, this is where we're at, and we're hoping it's significant. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, the down payment was raised just a little bit because the negotiation carried us a little bit over our limit, and apparently that messes with everything. Uh, it's not beyond our capabilities, um, but we'll get those out to you in specifics. Yeah, is that? All right. We can move on now to false prophets, which is gr- church growth. Uh, number one on the church growth movement is talk about false prophets on Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> We're continuing on in our, uh, that was a joke. For If you're new with us, I'm glad you're here. I'm sarcastic. Um, and if you don't pick up on that, it might be a long next 30-ish minutes. Uh, all right, if you grew up in Missouri and are over the age of 40, uh, the name, this name may, may be a little familiar to you. The name Iben Browning. Anybody remember that name? Iben Browning, back in 1990, made a, he was a climatologist, uh, and he was a consultant, and he made a prediction that on December 3rd, 1990, the New Madrid Fault would have a massive earthquake and would wreak havoc on the entire region. Uh, The last time the New Madrid Fault let loose, the Mississippi River, supposedly the Mississippi River flowed backwards and it rang church bells as far away as Washington, D.C. So it was significant. And I was in high school uh, at that time And uh, the world responded, including our beloved St. Charles uh, School District, uh, where I was uh, a sophomore, where I was in school (laughs) at, uh, yeah, our beloved public school system. Actually, they're great. Uh, I was in school 
uh, at St. Charles West at the time, and, um, and we prepared, lots of government agency school districts, we prepared for this prediction to come true, and we had several drills. So when the earthquake hit, we were to put our hands over our heads and then crawl under those little 1980s plastic desks. I don't know if they're still around in schools. You know, it's like the all-inclusive, like, little sheet of plastic that everything rocks when you sit into it, the chair included. That was to protect us from a collapsing building <laughs> while the earth was shaking. And so we sat under those desks like that, and then once the earth stopped shaking, we were to get up and go outside. Now... I was a freshman punk. Like, I didn't care. It was 30 minutes out of my day. Uh, but, um, oh, I'm sorry. We were to get up single file and very orderly fashion walk outside and stand in the parking lot um, in a non-panicked way. Uh, so the only down thing for me is December 3rd was the prediction. So the drills were happening in late November. It was a little cold outside. And then the day came. Now, this prediction was based loosely on some different weather patterns and some other uh, observations that this one guy had. Um, spoiler alert, um, it did not happen. Um, several parents on that day held their kids out of school. Some school districts actually canceled classes for that day, teachers were on edge. Again, as a punk in high school, like I didn't, I was like, hey, we get time out for earthquake drills. Um, so it didn't, it didn't really affect me some, so much. Although I will say we did put a whole lot of faith in those little plastic desks um, to protect us. Uh, now, I did learn, hypothetically, I did learn what I was supposed to do if I was trapped in an earthquake at my high school uh, and how to do that. But um, the other things that that produce, a whole lot of fear, a whole lot of panic, a whole lot of diverted attention, um, for something that really, that we came to find, really didn't have a whole lot of bearing behind it. So, is he a false prophet, or is it just a bad prediction, a false prediction? Uh, I don't know, but I will tell you, nothing happened on December 3rd to the New Madrid Fault, nor in any time in the 33 years since then, <laughs> 33 years. All right, here again, Super Bowl morning, celebrating baptisms, heading downhill to finishing the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to look this week and next week at some of the warnings that Jesus gives us uh, on how to know that we're actually walking in the kingdom of God versus a lesser kingdom. Are we operating with wisdom? Are we operating in a fear of, Lord or a fear of the Lord or a fear of man? And, and what does that look like? And he's going to tell us about false prophets and how to be aware of them, uh, that we will know them by their fruit. So this morning, here's, this is our outline. We're going to, what is a general description of a prophet? Who is Jesus talking about here? And then what's bad fruit and what's good fruit? How do we know? How do we know? Um, so we'll start here. Jesus just says, uh, this is after last week where he gives us the that there is a wide path that leads to destruction, and that there's a narrow path and a narrow gate. Jesus alone is the gate, but a narrow path that leads to life. Um, so, who are 
the false prophets. Uh, I'm not going to... I'm not going to name names this morning. Uh, however, I'll let that rest on you until toward the end. Um, in the Hebrew Scriptures, a prophet basically is somebody who spiritually stands, that, that, that they stand between God and God's people, and they are supposed to speak on behalf of God to the people of God. Prophets were never treated super great, <laughs> uh, especially uh, when you see them in the Old Testament. They often spoke words of judgment when Israel was doing well. Uh, however, when Israel was uh, not doing well, uh, when they were in exile, the prophets spoke words of comfort and hope. Um, so this is what prophets do. Uh, so if they are not speaking on behalf of God, but if they are speaking on their own behalf, then they are, in fact, a, a false prophet. Now, I want you to hear me. Uh, uh, this is talking about preachers, Okay. This is a daunting te uh, text to preach. Last week, I, meant, I, I mentioned that it ought to at least give us pause. Fear shouldn't dominate our life, but it should give us pause when we read that passage, wide is the path that leads to destruction, right? And there ought to be a healthy moment of going, okay, there's some self-evaluation that I need to hear, that I need to do. Um, so this week is directed at the preacher that illuminates a wide path. So you guys get a free pass this week, uh, and this is all on me. I was hoping you'd laugh. <laughs> People pulling their pens out now and ready to write down notes. All right, it's not all about me. All right, I will tell you, uh, again, this text is heavy. Um, don't think that this doesn't produce a measure of self-reflection and introspection swirling around in my head. The false prophet might be compelling, convincing, charismatic, dogmatic. They may have conviction. Jesus says that they will act and look like a sheep. However, internally they are deceivers. Not the deceiver necessarily, but there is something sinister inside. And scary enough, they may even have deceived themselves. That's very possible, if not common. More often than not, what does it work in them is, what does it work in a false prophet is ego, pride, arrogance. I've heard often people joke about people in the pastorate and they're like, yeah, well, uh, of course you're going to believe this when you get paid for it. And I'm like, you've never been a pastor. Um, however, ego is a, is a dangerous uh, mistress. This could be a lust for control. This could be a lust for power, selfish gain, notoriety, money, but it's not for Jesus. Religion, I mean, religion is one of the easiest tools in all ages to manipulate, to um, motivate people and manipulate people. Now, that said, another great tool for motivating and manipulating people is guilt that often religion can use. Or suspicion that is often used now against religion. And in our day, take your pick. Those are both available in abundance. The most recent stats show that 34% of America's, Americans have a high view or a high level of respect for clergy. 
I am a clergy, and that number still seems high to me. Um, and then I probably have some questions about those 34%, if I'm honest. What do you mean by that? Um, that's down uh, 30 points from 2012. However we've used statistics, that's significant, I would think. Um, and here's the deal. I, I get it. I get it. I mean, I don't enjoy it, and it's hard, um, but I get it. I building a friendship with somebody, and I, I got dumped. Like, I got a kind of a Dear John text because they didn't trust pastors. Uh, and it's painful, and I get it. Um, I, want, I, want, I want you to hear me on this, though. Here's what this does not mean. This does not mean that pastors aren't sinners, okay? We have to distinguish. I want to make you a promise. Pastors are sinners. So let's, let's make that distinction. I prefer to let you know up front that I'm a sinner versus you finding out sometime down the line uh, that I am. I struggle with pride, guilt, shame, escape, lust, greed, and judgment. Oh, man, uh, the judgment. On the good days, I call it discernment. Um, and if you don't believe me, I should probably ask my family to leave the room here, but I would invite you to ride in the passenger seat when we're driving down a two-lane highway, and people seem to be just unaware, uh, especially Kentucky and Tennessee, that the left lane is not like, that's for driving 85. Okay. Um, I don't know what you kids are learning in school these days. Uh, yeah. Um, and, then, and then the people that tend to pull in front of us, uh, almost, almost it seemed supernatural. Uh, and my wife, every once in a while, she's, I love my wife to death, and every once in a while she'll give me that comment that God's obviously trying to get my attention. <laughs> which goes over great. <laughs> um, here's the deal. Pastors are sinners. Pastors are sinners. I know a lot of pastors who have been deeply, deeply, deeply wounded by people that they try to love and help. Uh, and it's hard. A lesson that I've had to learn really the hard way in pastoring is how many people desperately need you until they don't anymore. Um, and that can leave some scars. The pastors that I'm most concerned about are the ones who don't acknowledge this at all. Uh, the ones who try to cover up the idea that they are sinful, they cause, cause me the greatest concern. And yet, I get it, I get why they do that, because there's a weird part of our culture, and it may be a weird part of every culture, but ours in particular, that also loves to see people fall. Uh, and... So we all kind of tend to self-protect, right? The famous poet laureate of the 70s and 80s, Paul Simon, his famous words, I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes its pain, its laughter, and its loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. And so we live in suspicion, because it's easier than to live in trust. And here's what I want you to know. 
living in suspicion and living in self-protection, whereas, again, I get it and I understand it, that can actually do more harm to our souls than the risk of getting hurt again. Love anyone and you will be hurt. That's a promise from, that's C.S. Lewis, right? Yeah. I didn't have that one written there. Uh, pastors are not Jesus. Some feel like they are. A lot feel like they have to be. But we are not. But also, there's a promise in James that teachers will be held to a higher account in this life or the next. So we got that going. So before we land on the practicality of what fruit to look for, I want to ask the question for you, what are you supposed to get from this passage? What are you supposed to hear? What's your, what, what should, what, like, why would Jesus write this to us? What's it for? Um, is it just that pastors get a warning? Uh, I would say that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's part of it for sure. Uh, and this is important. Uh, and, and hear me on this. Paul does give some measure of freedom uh, in Philippians 1.18 that he says, there are pastors who are going to pre- preach Jesus out of, for selfish gain. And Paul rejoices that Jesus is being preached. All right? So here again, I'm not th- I don't think the role of the general congregant or parishioner is to sit and take notes and say, all right, let's judge every single motive that that pastor has and find out uh, if they're genuine or not, I think that would be terrible. And I don't think that's the role, that's the role of Twitter. That's not the role of, of the followers of Jesus. Uh, and I'll tell you here again, um, there are weeks when I'm up here and I am compelled and driven to make Jesus known and to make him beautiful uh, and to... Um, combat some of the, the, the voices of our time. There's also times when I'm up here that I'm hoping to be impressive in some way, and then there's other times when I just want to get this over with and go home and take a nap. So what I'm saying to you is uh, maybe that we're not completely altruistic about the role of the prophet or the, or the pastor, um, but also we are also commanded to pray for pastors. Uh, and to pray for those who shepherd the flock. Um, and to do that with wisdom and discernment, all right? We're in a day and age where we charge everybody with heresy. Take your pick. Uh, so that's probably not healthy. I think the point of this for the follower of Jesus, for the congregant, uh, the one who is soaking in the teaching and being motivated and fueled and shaped by it, is that you would have, all of us really, but, but you would have wisdom and discernment as to what and who you are being shaped toward. What the teaching that you soak in, the books that you read, the podcasts you listen to that come with spirituality or really anything, what are they pushing you toward? Um, what fruit is being produced in you through the preacher? through what you're listening. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Nobody? Okay. All right. That was a legit question. Um, All right. 
1990, Ivan Browning, going back to this, he made a prediction. A whole lot of time and training and money and attention was given to this by school district, by various government agencies, on and on and on. What to do when and if he was right. Very specific date. What's funny is December 4th, none of us cared. Like if he was off by a day, we're like, ah! I'm like, we should at least give a week probably in there. Um, now, he was a PhD, so obviously he knew what he was talking about, right? Here's the other thing about Ivan Browning. He also did research on equipping whales with uh, hydrogen bombs so that they could be used as weapons. It's not like there were no red flags. <laughs> we, we're, we have wisdom and discernment, right? So let's take a minute and look at fruit. What's bad fruit? What's good fruit? He sums this up. You will know them by their fruit. Uh, this is a gift that God has given us to be able to discern, to be able to step back and say, okay, I see this, but man, I have some questions here. To know our own hearts, to discern who do we listen to, who do we give our attention to, who do you give the right to have access to your soul and your mind and to shepherd you and shepherd you well, because self-protection is awful. If you give nobody that right, that's not good. But if you're just like, all right, here, world, internet, this website or this website, you have all access. We're also supposed to practice wisdom and discernment. Bad fruit. Anything that actually leads us away from Jesus. That's, that's the simplest I can say to say it, but there's a lot that, to pack into that. The two most common forms of bad fruit and false prophets in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, they use guilt and pride all the time. One... You have false prophets that are telling the people, you guys are awesome. Just do whatever you want. Make the sacrifices, right? Wear the right t-shirts, vote the right way, but do what you want. Um, that wasn't good. That was an appeal to self-righteousness. On the other side, uh, you have prophets that would establish more rules to follow. Uh, the sins that were acceptable on their side versus the sins that were not acceptable on the other side, again, appealing to self-righteousness that says, this is why I'm better than you. Both sides. Both of these things produce devotion to something other than Jesus. When our devotion is fueled towards something other than Jesus, a political party, a cultural movement, a church brand or logo, a nation, money, personal glory, self-indulgence. These are the things that we can be devoted to other than Jesus. And when these things happen, it tends to form in us an us versus them type of mentality. And when we, devote, when we become more about us versus them, it ceases to be about the values that we have or hold, and it becomes more of about winning, beating the other side, using whatever language, whatever means necessary to beat the other side. And in the case of following Jesus, this is, you can apply this to any movement, but in the case of following Jesus, it ceases to be about faithfulness, and it really ceases to be about anything about Jesus. We can use him as a weapon, but it ceases to be anything about actually following him and becoming more like him. 
All right, Chiefs fans, this is my football reference. All right, calm down. I'm not, there's not going to be. All right, Chiefs fans, have the refs ever cheated for your team? All right. How many of you ever post after a game, man, the refs really cheated for us today? Right? Of course they didn't. Of course they're against us. Everybody's against us. Every school now has the motto, us against the world. Right? Uh, Non-Chiefs fans, if, if you like football and you're not a Chiefs fan, do the refs enable the Chiefs to win? Okay. Here's the deal. Our sinful nature is easy, easily manipulated when you appeal to the right thing. False prophets know that, and they prey on that. It's always us against the enemy, someone else's fault, someone else's problem, and all we need to do is get rid of them. The fruit that this produces, fear, Anger, bitterness, self-righteousness, shame, comparisonitis, self-indulgence, pride. Any of those sound familiar? If you've been here longer than probably than today, you know um, how much I appreciate Tim Keller and how much he had been an influence on me. Um, he was a pastor in, in Manhattan, pastor in New York, uh, author. I always appreciated his wisdom. I appreciated his gentle spirit. He never overreacted in public. He would be accused. He had a deep desire to actually engage people that I would write off because he had such a desire for them to know Jesus. He passed away last May from pancre pancreatic cancer at the age of 72. Um, Tim Keller held to an orthodox view of scripture. You find anybody without a bent toward him to argue that? I mean, he held to a very orthodox view of scripture and doctrine. Impeccable, well thought out. However, during his battle with cancer and even after, uh, a group of pastors, well, let me say that he was humble he was engaged in cultural dialogue. He loved people that he would disagree with him. He was held in uh, very high respect uh, among many people. Uh, when he passed away, uh, the amount of people, especially younger writers and authors, uh, even people who had left Keller's evangelical tribe, published emails that he sent to them privately, encouraging them in their work. Hey, I read your book. You need to keep writing. This is great. Thank you for doing this. They would come out of the woodworks to do that. Uh, over the past few years, even as he was dying of, of uh, cancer, a group of pastors started to attack Tim Keller online, accusing him of being too winsome. I would say it's okay to laugh at that. Um, that he was weak, that he wasn't bold enough, that he was caving to culture, that he needed to toughen up. Now was the time to fight, not the time to be winsome. 
Now is the time to win. Uh, and his winsomeness may have worked in the early 2000s, but now we have to fight because culture has turned against Christianity. It has. Hear me, okay? It has. And hear me again? It's okay. God is not less powerful. Okay. So I agree with that point. However, this is a group of pastors. That the uh, leader uh, resides in Moscow, Idaho, and may not be aware that Manhattan in the early 2000s was just as much. Manhattan's not nice to anybody, but especially not Christians. And Tim Keller has been walking this path for a very long time. And he has proclaimed faithfully the name of Jesus. Um, and yet, they attack. And consequently, the early church was not favored in any culture whatsoever. In fact, the agendas against the early church were wide out in the open. They weren't secret. They weren't undermining. They were pronounced from the top against Christianity. And yet Jesus says, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. Paul says to Christians in Rome, when at all possible, live at peace with everyone. These pastors and their leaders require strict adherence to specific doctrine. Absolute uniformity or you're out. You're obviously a liberal. You're obvi obviously going to hell. You're obviously a heretic. Whatever. Take your pick. If you won't line up down the line. They are angry, mean-spirited, incredibly judgmental, spiteful, they operate out of fear and insecurity. They have to tell you all the time how masculine they are. They use scripture as a weapon. And here's the thing. I even hate saying this. There are some doctrinal issues that I agree with. We hold in common. And the way they apply them is absolutely the most unchristlike thing that I've ever seen. It's manipulative, and it's self-serving. And in my opinion, and here, this, is where, this is where the rubber meets the road. In my opinion, they are not sheep in wolf's clothing. In my opinion, they are wolves in wolf's clothing. However, when winning is the goal, wolves can be useful. And when we the people are more concerned about winning we will give our devotion to wolves because they can be effective. They are effective for earthly kingdoms. Scripture never uses effectiveness solely as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. When I was younger, I felt the weight of the fear and insecurity. Because let me tell you something, even now, I have no desire to get attacked. I have no desire, I don't want blogs written about me. I'm, 
I'm with you. I, like, I've stopped doing this stuff on social media. I, it drives me bananas for the most part. I, Darden, when he was here, Darden used to say, man, you, you kind of like to poke the bear. And I said, I don't like to poke the bear. I just poke the bear. <laughs> I would love the bear to sit there and go, excellent point. I don't want to be called a heretic, especially, especially when I was younger. I would have this fear of somebody walking in like after the sermon and go, obviously that's heresy that was covered in the, the uh, I don't know, take your pick, the, the canons of Sicily 1708, uh, paragraph 3, section 15, very clearly stated. Uh, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, how did I miss that? Um, and I felt a whole lot like I had to be the savior of people, like I had to be the savior of the church. And it wasn't necessarily out of arrogance, but it was out of insecurity. Like, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? And there's two ways for a church to become about the pastor. One is pride and arrogance, but the other, and probably more common, is fear. It's insecurity. And if I didn't do it, who would? And I felt the huge pull of this appeal, us versus themism, where Tim uh, Keller helped me grow tremendous ways was in a knowledge of Jesus and scripture where to be settled in Christ, I didn't have to be so defensive and I didn't have to be so judgmental. That the fruit of knowing and trusting Jesus wasn't about winning because here again, and I've said this before, when Jesus physically walked out of the grave, he won. There's nothing left for us to win. Culture is a not for us to win. We bear witness in good times and in bad. To trust Jesus doesn't produce a self-righteous disdain for your enemies. It is not us against the world. It is us for the sake of the world. Now, Saying that, we also have to be aware of our tendencies toward equal and oppositism. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes, and this is what happens in our culture, right? We grow up one way, there's a wound, there's a hurt, there's some reaction. So we're just like, well, then obviously the answer is the equal and opposite of what that is. So then we go to this trench over here, start lobbing our grenades this way or this way. And I will believe anything you tell me as long as my parents didn't believe it right? Which is our current culture. Uh, again, and that's what happens when there's only two sides and we are always out to win. And what happens there, we kind of make a new platform that we don't examine at all and put all of our critique on the other side, on what we used to know. And look at all the problems there. And look at all the problems there. And look at all the problems there which may be fair, but you never stop to look down and go, okay, but what about the problems where you're standing? You've left that unexamined. And our views are tainted by bitterness. It's not good. To trust Jesus is to be honest about myself, to be honest about my sin, to stand fully exposed before Jesus, not denying my sin, not try to compensate for it, not blaming the refs, 
or somebody else, but to confess, I am guilty. I'm guilty. I don't have to pretend, and I don't have to overdo it. I'm guilty. I've sinned against you in word and in deed and in thought. Is there any hope? I'm guilty, God. What's, what's my hope? And to hear the response of Jesus say this, I know, but you are not rejected. In me, you are loved and welcomed and made new. And now let's begin the reclamation project. Let's begin to go to work on that. Follow me. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. And I get this. We look in that, we look at it, we hear that. Like, all you got to do is follow. That's too easy. It's so easy. But here's the deal. It is not. If you know yourself, that's not easy. It's not easy to trust. We want some qualifications, some asterisks, and some quid pro quos, right? Because this is not our natural self. We want the wide path of self-justification. God, I'm guilty, but I'm not as guilty as that guy. Look at those people. They're way more guilty than I am. So how about you and me? We work out a deal, and then we both have time to worry about them. That's the wide path. The gospel produces something else. Listen, it's easy to rally the troops. It's easy to see that the problem is always with those people. And again, pick your side. Pick your side. Our tendency, when we hear it's about those people, is our tendency is to go, yeah, <laughs> instead of, yeah. You know the difference there? Or, or, I've also learned this the hard way. It's also easy to stand in the middle and go, the problem is with those people. We, however, ah, we can't even get away with that. I'd like to, but we can't. Those trees produce bad fruit. Uh, Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he says it this way. If only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing all the evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every man. And who is willing to put to death their own heart? The follower of Jesus. Walks the narrow path. Who is willing to put to death the kingdoms of me? To walk in humility and joy and hope that is Jesus and the kingdom of God that he is ushering in. And listen, the fruit might not measure up in our capitalistic standards, all right? Size, bottom line, that is not spiritual fruit. It's not evil, but it's not automatically baptized. But the fruit that it produces in God's economy will be glorious. The roots grow deeper as we are rooted and built up. Paul would tell us the fruit that is produced. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Gentleness. Kindness. 
goodness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit produced by following Jesus is to become more, not less, dependent on Jesus and to become more like Jesus. So here's your assignment for this week. I spent more time focusing on the bad fruit because I feel like that's easier to discern, to go, all right, yeah, I should be aware that what bad fruit is there. Um, there's two, two good lists that you can look at. Galatians 5, and we can put this uh, somewhere to, for scripture references. Galatians 5, 16 through 26. Colossians 3, 5 through 17. These are both extensive views that Paul looks at what we put on as new creations and what we put off. The old self that we put to death. And yes, it's the common, the sexual immorality and greed and lust and, and bigotry and all that kind of stuff. And then what we put on, the peace, the patience, the hope, all of those things. Um, and just to take some time this week to think intentionally about that. What is the fruit being produced in me? What I give my time and attention to? Who I listen to? Who I, who I have given a voice uh, in my shepherding? What is that producing in me? Maybe if you're daring, ask people that know you well who will tell you the truth. Over the last five years, give it a decent measurement. Have you seen some of these being produced in me? Where have you seen good fruit? What are some warnings you have about bad fruit? But take some time this week. Do some self-introspection, and I am too. And if you're like, hey, man, I think one of the things you're leading us toward is do it. Send that email. Maybe give me a text warning that the email's coming. I'd ask for kindness and gentleness, but if you've got to let it go, let it go, man. Um, following Jesus, like we looked at last week, it's, it's not easy. It's very good. What's easy is all of our self-justifications, our justified anger, our justified bitterness, our justified hatred of those people. What's hard is I am a sinner in need of grace and mercy. And if I have received that, who am I to withhold that from anybody? And how we carry that out, how we live that out, how we speak hope to the world around us needs to be peppered with that, seasoned with it. All right? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that uh, you've given us ways to discern. Discern our own hearts, discern the people that we listen to. False prophets, uh, encouragements, sometimes they can sound really good, sometimes they tickle all the right places that we want to voice our own anger and vengeance. Uh, sometimes just feels really good, and yet you have called us to a different way that does not fit into our often easily situated camps. So Holy Spirit, would you do, would you do your work in us, please? For those who may be here this morning, um, maybe there's some angst Maybe there is a justified mistrust of religion or pastors or anybody trying to manipulate, and maybe that has produced a hardness that also needs to be broken. 
And I'm asking, Holy Spirit, would you do the supernatural work of softening our hearts where they have been hardened? Our consciences where they have been seared? Our commitment to self that needs to be broken in a good way so that it can be healed. I honestly, hesitantly, but confidently give you permission to uh, do what you need to do in us to continue to walk and follow you and to find the joy and hope on that path. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.